scripture reading today is James 5, verses 14 to 16, and 1 John 1, verses 8 till 10. James 5, Any among you sick, call the elders of the church and ask them to pray for you, that they'll anoint you with oil and call for the name of the Lord to heal you. If the Lord sees fit, this kind of prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and restore them to health. If the sick person turns to the Lord and confesses his sins, he will be forgiven. And this, too, will help heal him get well. Admit your faults to each other and confess your sins to God. Pray for each other. And if it's God's will, the sick among you will be healed. The fervent prayer of a righteous man has tremendous power. And 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10, to 10, If we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we acknowledge our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. President Bush is famous for Bush-isms and the manufacture of certain words. And if that happens to me today... I have a newfound sympathy for our president. You see, the media has blamed these many times on the heat in Texas. And after the heat in Glendale last night, I don't think my brain is quite straight. It was one of those nights where you lay on your bed, not in it, the fan blowing, and you hope that you can nod off at some point through the night. And then you wake up in the freezing early hours of morning and it's down to 75, so you pull a sheet over yourself, you know, that kind of feeling. Been there? Okay, so just be thankful you're not preaching today. Okay, we'll try to get this straight. We have been talking about church. Particularly, I've been trying to emphasize the way in which the church is uniquely empowered. That is to say that when we gather together as a body, by the call of the Spirit of God, that is to say, when we organize ourselves, we get to do things that we don't necessarily have the authority to do or the purview to do or the right to do on our own. And those things are, in some cases, just a matter of needing more bodies than one body to accomplish something. And in some cases, uh, it really goes to something much deeper. So we started on Memorial Day looking at the very notion of Uh, what it means to remember and to remember collectively. Tying ourselves first to the holiday and then to the idea that it is the church's job collectively to reenact the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and to remember and to carry on the traditions of remembering which Christ invoked us to do. So the Eucharist, the communion, the table itself with its Blood and its flesh, its bread and its wine or juice, these symbols bring us back to a commemoration that happens in a unique way when two or more are gathered. It is something that happens in in the context of church. Even the blessing of these elements is something that happens through a process we'll get to in just a little bit and that is an an ordination process, a process by which uh, the Spirit is handed from generation to generation, if you will. So the church stands in a unique position there to both reenact and to remember. Then the following week, I think we talked about heterodoxy and orthodoxy and heresy.
and noted that orthodoxy was consensus statement, heterodoxy was different than consensus statement, and I nuanced the words a little bit. While heterodoxy and heresy are very close in meaning, I nuanced them to help us sort of differentiate in that heresy has a decidedly negative context. Heresy is something that drives wedges between people and and separates them. Heterodoxy is a sort of uh, plurality, as I described it, of things that may be within uh, a range of controversy. For example, uh, since the early 80s, the question of the sanctuary has been one that Adventists have debated on. There were some significant defrockings and dismemberings around those uh, conversations in the early 80s. And the unfortunate outcome was that it became no longer safe for the church to dialogue theologically. You don't have to agree with that, but think about that for a while, because I think that's really true. It became unsafe, especially for individuals in positions like mine, to make statements that were in any way... um, in contrast to orthodoxy or in in a way testing the limits of orthodoxy. And that's an unfortunate uh, outcome of that particular era and we have the opportunity as a church to become a place where conversation is safe and yet where the boundaries of orthodoxy are understood. We have the opportunity to uh, share a small degree of plurality, which is the fact. We, we, we don't have a huge degree of plurality within a given Adventist congregation, but we have a small degree of diversity that, that uh, we live and let live with. And, and then we understand that when certain things become changed to the point that they are no longer uh, recognizable as Adventist, we have a difference that, that, that's profound in terms of identity. So that was our talk on uh, orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and... Heresy, thank you. Next we looked at uh, witness and proclamation. The church stands unique through history, going back to the apostles, in the witness of what happened in the recounting of that witness. I mean, we have written record as early as 25 and 30 years after the death of Christ as to what happened directly observed in the life and death of Christ and resurrection of Christ. So the apostles who followed him, the disciples, I should say, who followed him his three and a half years of ministry, who may have uh, seen John in action, who were privy to the things that went on in the inner circle of of Jesus' ministry and life, recorded later for us what was said by those. And that stands as an enduring witness known to us as the Gospels. Paul later comes as a witness, having seen Christ in a very special way. He describes himself as an apostle abnormally born, but nevertheless an apostle, not one of the twelve. Matthias being added to the twelve, and we'll probably look briefly at that again today. So we have these witnesses who then move from the oral tradition to the written tradition and who give us something that we carry as a body of believers through time and space. It is miraculous that parts of our Bible are nearly 4,000 years old, that we have these as living testimonies to man's interaction with a living and enduring God, and that we, we revere them and hold them in authority because of that experience that's recorded and the multiple years of working with that experience that tells us something has a deep and lasting truth 
and eternal truth to speak into our lives. So we hold these scriptures and we have them as living witness and it is our job to be witnesses to the living Christ as we encounter him in our own devotional life, in our own spiritual quests, in our own uh, attempts to follow Jesus. And then we have proclamation and that is the story that the church is empowered to tell out of what it has seen and heard. Go and tell what you have seen and heard, Jesus says. So as we encounter ourselves, the living Christ in the word and through experience, as we encounter the living Son of God, it is our job to bear witness in the way we treat one another, in the way we live, and in the way we speak, and in the way we share that living Christ with others. It becomes our challenge and our joy and our privilege to proclaim good news. Next time you're tempted to witness about Adventism by telling somebody they shouldn't eat shrimp, ask yourself if that is the good news. You giggle, but I hear that an awful lot. Somebody, a dear saint, raises their hand when it comes to time to share a witnessing opportunity and they're next to somebody at a vegetarian sushi bar. And, no, I don't know, but they, you get the picture. That was, thank you. Who's laughing? Oh, somebody got that. I love that. There's no such thing as a vegetarian sushi bar. Okay. You can get items, of course, but not the whole, anyway. Sushi is, by definition, sliced raw fish. There we go. Okay. So that was proclamation. And what we want to make sure is that when we're proclaiming the word of God, we're proclaiming the good news about God. And what is the good news about God? That God loves us, that we have been... Here's the the good news. You have been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. That is the good news. The good news is that we are no longer in a state of condemnation or enmity. God has embraced us and welcomed us and called us his own. And Christ no longer calls us servants, but friend and brother. We have received so much at the hand of God. So much grace has come to us in Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel. That is the proclamation that goes forward. We have a distinctive truth to share. That comes out of orthodoxy and our understanding of what the word teaches and what the word means, doesn't it? Just because that's the good news doesn't mean the Sabbath doesn't contain good news, does it? Doesn't mean that when we look at our understanding of the very nature of man and the state of the dead that that doesn't contain good news, It doesn't mean that when we teach somebody about the nature of Christ that in that there isn't good news. All of our teachings contain good news. None of them are the good news. They all circle round the good news and point to it. The good news is a God-made flesh who dwelt among us and gave us access to himself in a way that we would have never, ever had otherwise. And that is the unique power of Christianity and the power of witness and proclamation, which is not an individual event. It is a corporate, it is a 
shared event. It is something the church is entrusted with. You can say amen. Last week, I started on the the present uh, course, and that is events that mark a life. And that was my way of talking about uh, what the Catholics call sacraments. It was my way of talking about the ways in which we corporately experience the grace of Christ in ways that we otherwise wouldn't. And I mentioned that we had already covered one, and that was uh, the Eucharist or the communion That is to say, the Lord's Supper. We had already covered that one in our in memoriam, but we we reviewed that last week. That that is one of those things by which we experience a special sort of grace. And we broaden that, as Jesus commanded, to a communal understanding of that grace by adding the ordinance of humility, as John 13 directs. You see, while it may be dramatically out of touch with the way we live and work in contemporary society and our expectations of what we ought to be about, washing feet is called the ordinance of humility because, again, it points to the work of Christ in this act of grace. And it ties us one to another as servants of one another as we are also then in this uh, sort of way of speaking servants of Christ. Okay? So we have that one that we've talked about. We talked a little bit about um, the blessing of the Spirit and baptism. In our tradition, baptism comes first, and I explained last week the meaning of baptism in, in several different layers. And we talked about how in our tradition, uh, confirmation isn't something that happens uh, after elementary school. Um, because we were baptized as infants, confirmation comes for us. That is to say, the spirit we believe comes with baptism. And actually, we know that the spirit works prior to, during, and after. Because we looked at texts in which the spirit had come to the Gentiles, for example, prior to baptism. It was part of what enabled the baptism process to go forward. So the Holy Spirit is at work in all of us, at all ages. And the particular gifts of the Spirit, we believe, are often manifested as we are baptized. And I didn't talk a lot about that, but that is where we uh, experience the extension of the mystery I did talk about. The mystery I talked about was Christ, the head of the body, and how that union is mysterious. How we are one with him in this, and one with one another in this, and yet entirely different fulfilling different purposes and roles, just as the heart is not the toe, is not the appendix, is not the little finger, whatever. We have a diversity of gifts, a diversity of talents, a diversity of ideas, a diversity of backgrounds that God pulls together into one thing he calls a body, and he empowers us each to do our part. Now, I want you to ask yourself which part of your body you want to quit working right now. Pete votes for his right hand. You want to show us that manifestation there, Peter? I'd say that's a safe bet. But seriously, uh, Peter's good sense of humor aside, what would you vote to have quit working right now? What do you want? Some of you might say, well, I want my hair to quit growing. Well, okay, baldness? Terry's up for it. All right. I see hands. We've got a club going. 
But do you really, do you want your hair to quit growing? Okay. Uh, what, what, do, what do you really, what would you part with right now? Kidney? Kidneys. Liver? Pancreas? Heart? Colon? Small intestines. Let's do without our diaphragm. Lungs? Anybody interested in living without their ribs? Cranium? How about your brain stem? (laughs) You see, most of us don't want to part with anything, and we don't want any part of our body to quit working. Have any of you ever had a Charlie horse in like your toe? Where your toe just cramps up and you feel this sort of radiating thing and you you just really can't even walk normal with it? If you've had that, you know what I mean? That's a toe. That's not anything major, really. And here's what happens. This is hard words, my friends, hard words. Don't put your uh, armor on. Let it soak in. The hard word is that we are all part of a body in which only about 25 to 40% is actually functioning. That is really tough. That means that we're essentially on a respirator and life support or that we've been severed in half or something. That means the work isn't going forward in the way it needs to because the diversity of the body and the gifts that Christ has given us all are not being manifested by us bringing them together. This is true in tithes and offerings as well. A small percentage of the people end up supporting the work of the church. And if everybody did their part, we would have resources to do things that we can't imagine doing right now. It would be really, really exciting to be a part of the body. So I come to this week, and my time is up. I want to focus on a couple, though, uh, just because I think they're worth giving time to. The first one is the notion of confession. I am really uh, concerned about this particular uh, sacrament because it doesn't really exist in a formal way in our church. We have privatized it. We have come to believe that confession is something that occurs only to God and is only a private event and is only our business and nobody else's business and that confession as such, the the, the domain of forgiveness lies solely with God and that by confessing solely to God we receive forgiveness solely from God and therefore we are justified solely by God and we go on our merry way and that is the end of the story and yet the fact is most of us don't regularly confess. Not even to God. And the, the larger Christian church has a tradition, not that I want to uh, immediately embrace because it's not always safe in our context. We, we want to grow into a place of safety for this, this to happen in a sense. But the notion of sin is often described as, according to scripture, transgression of what? If you take that as the Ten Commandments, how many of those laws have to do directly with God? The first four. And how many have to do with our relationships with one another? The last six. In other words, the majority of the law has to do with our relationships with one another. 
And I would suggest to you that the vast majority of our sins are first and foremost against one another. Sins of greed and pride and envy may diminish us and hurt the image of God in us and God may be in some way affected or offended or I'm not sure how to describe that. But the real brunt of it is what we accept and what we take in one another, isn't it? I mean, sins, the sin of adultery may be a sin against God. Nathan comes to David and calls him on it because God sends him to do this. But the real victim in the story is Bathsheba and David. He's the perpetrator as well, but he, he ends up paying a heavy price for his sin, doesn't he? You see, most of our sins really occur in relationship to one another. And I would think that a good place for confession to start would be to the one that we have offended or sinned against. The, the good place for confession to start is to owning the acts that we have done that drive wedges between us. And in owning those actions and asking for forgiveness, that we give the other person an opportunity to let go of the injury or the harm or the hurt that affects their lives. You see, that's really what forgiveness is all about. It's no longer holding on to something tightly that's going to end up hurting us. Forgiveness is the process of opening our hands and letting go so that we are free to live our lives. Forgiveness is the most psychologically sound principle in all of Christianity. A lot of mental disorders that exist out there would be gone and wouldn't exist if people could learn to let go and forgive. People would be less depressed. They would be less hostile. There would be so many benefits if we could embrace this idea. And it means confession, taking responsibility for what we have done wrong to others and seeking as much as we can to make that right. You see, somewhere along the line, we came to make it a theological issue rather than a body issue. I don't want to beat this with, to a pulp, but let me just explain. We said no man has the right to forgive sins. So when a person confesses to a padre, to a father, to a priest in a confessional and the priest says, my son, your sins are forgiven, we theologized, is that the word I'm looking for? Thank you. We made it a theological issue and said, aha, that's wrong. The priest doesn't have the right to forgive sin. What we missed was the injunction that the scripture said to confess your sins to one another. Now, in the context of Catholicism, the confessional is supposed to be a safe place. And unfortunately, penances in the Catholic system have replaced restitution. I don't care how you slice it. If you stole something from a store, say something worth 50 bucks, a thousand Hail Marys does not take the place of the store owner's loss. Taking $50 to the store owner and saying, I took this item and I need to pay for it. That's restitution. So while we might want to argue fine points of disagreement, the fact of the matter remains we neglect confession. We neglect it corporately. When I go to a Lutheran church, 
they have a beautiful portion of their liturgy which addresses sins that are committed individually. Lord, we've sinned individually and we've sinned collectively. We, we praise God for the goodness of our nation, but at the same time, do we confess that we collectively as a nation have sinned? We ought to. We certainly ought to. And the sins are not always sins that we have committed or sins of commission. They're sins of omission. Sins that we have not, where we have not taken appropriate action. Have you ever sinned by not doing the right thing even though you didn't do anything active? Somebody was telling a half-truth about somebody and you didn't stand up and correct it or to speak the whole truth about that situation. You witnessed a petty theft at work, but you thought it would be too much trouble to report it because it might come back on you. Sins of omission, things we have not done that we should have done in our quest to be responsible. Daniel models for us confession to God in the most beautiful way in Daniel 9. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. He's praying now for Israel corporately. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole of heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. O Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Daniel is quite the guy. Is there a greater hero? Well, maybe Moses, maybe Elijah, but is there a greater hero in the Old Testament? No sin is ever ascribed to Daniel in in the teachings of the Old Testament. Daniel is faithful under four kings. Daniel stands to a ripe old age 
trained in the ways of the Babylonians, but never forgetting the God of Israel, never forgetting who he was, a Hebrew boy, never forgetting God's ownership in his life. And he is visited by angels and speaks dreams which have tremendous meaning and hold hope for Seventh-day Adventist people all of these years later. And he prays this prayer of confession. Clearly, he, he was a sinner. He, at least he felt he had sins to confess. And he prays for his people who have sinned. I am not going to open a confessional here. If you tell me that you've done something wrong and I say your sins are forgiven you, it won't be because I forgive them. It's because they've already been forgiven on the cross. It's because Jesus Christ died that your sins might forgiven and all who believe have access to that grace. I will encourage you. I will pray with you and pray for you. And when you sin against someone, you need to go to that person and you need to confess. And if I can find a way to do it occasionally, I'm going to bring corporate confession into our worship experience. Because we sin not only individually, but we sin collectively. Well, lest I commit the sin of overstaying my welcome, I'm going to pick this up July 12 and cover the last of these ways in which grace comes to us. But let us not neglect the grace that comes to us as we confess. For he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.